to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Thank you, everyone, for joining today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. We are your hosts, Sayla and Eileen. And today, our guest is Adam Adams. Adam Adams is also known in the real estate community as AAA, and he's devoted himself to educating and inspiring aspiring investors through the real estate conferences, radio, and podcast interviews, his program, and his thriving meetup group. Adam has been podcasting since 2017 and currently hosts the Apartment Investing Show. And his company, Blue Spruce Holdings, focuses on finding and managing apartment communities to allow passive investors diversification, cash flow, tax benefits, and freedom of time. Thank you for joining our show, Adam. How are you doing? I am fantastic, and I'm excited. I'm excited to be with you. Us too. We're so grateful that you took the time to meet with us today, so we really appreciate that. Absolutely. And I was four minutes late for the listener And I felt so bad. I was in a call and I was like, oh, crap, I have to go right now. And so I jumped in. So thank you for your patience as well. Thank you. So we would love to hear a little bit more about your background, Adam, if you can share a little bit about how you got into real estate and a little bit more about your background. Sure. They come together. So how I got into real estate and a bit about my background is it goes like this. I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and my mom remarried when I was about four or five years old. And that guy, the person that she remarried, his name's Jeff. He's my stepdad. And he's like one of the greatest guys you'll ever meet. Such an amazing man and raised us, raised us well. And he wanted to teach us some principles. Something that he had been doing for a really long time was real estate and entrepreneurship. And this book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad came out in 1997. And in 1997, my stepdad told me I had to read this book. But I I am dyslexic. I was back then, obviously, as well. Being dyslexic, reading was the last thing I ever wanted to do. So I just said, no, I don't want to. And I really put it off. And that's unfortunate because this is 1997. And it wasn't until 2005 that I actually got involved in real estate, but it wasn't even on my own. My stepdad actually purchased a piece of land. He gave it to me and then he made me pay him how much he purchased it for, which was not very much. It was only a hundred bucks. He got it. He was writing letters to people that were getting foreclosed on with by the tax deed auctions. He wrote a letter to this person and said, hey, if you do a quit claim deed, I'll give you a hundred bucks and then we'll take on this property before it goes anywhere and we'll take care of the rest. And so I had to pay the hundred and then I had to pay the taxes. And it was not something that I was ready for yet. Like my dad had, my stepdad had always told me that I needed to do it, but it wasn't something that I was really like open to. It just kind of fell into my lap because he made me do it. (laughs) And so that's really how I got started in real estate, but I didn't even get the bug until 2007 when I sold that and I made a 12,000% return on my money. With that money, that was more than I had ever made in a whole year, in my whole life. By this time, I had only had a couple types of jobs, restaurant jobs and construction jobs. So a lot of what I did was outside working, doing landscaping, things like that. It was hot and or bartending at a restaurant. 
while I was putting myself through college. And I just made more than in a, a whole year. Like I did nothing. I just sold a piece of land that I never really had to work on. I only had seen it twice. And now I made all this money. It was more money than I'd ever seen in one place, let alone, you know, more than I had ever made in a year. So in 2007, which was actually 10 years later than the day that he told me to read the book, I finally read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I had sold this land. I had seen how remarkable real estate investing could be. So in 2007, I picked up that book and it was a lot easier to read than I expected it would be. He, Robert Kiyosaki, the author, writes it in a way that is easy for someone like me to really get involved in. So it only took me a few weeks, but I finished the book. And after that, I started saying to myself, this is all I'm going to do. If I just made more money doing that, this is the only thing that I want to focus on for now on. And so it was in 2007 that I started becoming a property manager for a few apartment communities, as well as I started looking for my own apartments. So 2008, I bought one. I ended up losing it to let the listener know I did buy it at a really bad time and my tenants couldn't pay. And I made some mistakes myself as well. But my first apartment, multifamily, was a small one that I was trying to house hack. And I ended up losing it a couple years later from mismanagement and in part due to the market situation that we were in back then. But um, if you fast forward, in 2015, I started doing fix and flips because it seemed like the sexy thing that was on TV. So I started doing fix and flips and more tax deeds, auctions, and I wasn't really focused on anything, which is a huge mistake that I think that the listener needs to pay attention to. I was trying mobile home. I was trying self-storage. I was trying assisted living. I was trying multifamily, single family, syndication, funds. I was trying it all and I was trying it all relatively at the same time. And so in 2015 and 16, I had some good success, but I also held myself back by not focusing on one good thing because they're all good because I just wanted it to happen so badly. I just was chasing a lot of shiny objects. And I think that ultimately held me back. Awesome. Thank you, Adam, for sharing your background. It's really interesting. Isn't that a good return of investment? I mean, uh, for selling that land at the time? Yeah. Yeah. I've only known a couple of people to beat me, uh, but I have seen some people do a better return than 12,000%. It was phenomenal. And initially put a hundred bucks into it. Then I had to pay taxes a couple of times over the years, but it did end up bringing in quite a bit of money. I still, that was a huge benefit for me to learn that. But if I went through my journey one more time, knowing what I know now, I would have probably tried to focus instead of holding one piece of land for two years and it technically being a liability to me, like in Rich Dad, Poor Dad, that book talks about what an asset and the liability is. It was a liability for a a couple of years. And as a college student, I was in college in 2005, six, seven. I wasn't making any money on this piece of property. And I had to actually write checks every year for the taxes. Mm -hmm. 
And so if I did it over again, I would try to focus on something that was cash flowing each and every month, where if I stopped working, I would always have that. But if I stopped working, which was bartending in, in high school, college, I mean, if I stopped working as a bartender, I would have actually lost that property because it costs me money every year. So yeah, 12,000% humongous return, but I'd probably still do a few things differently. Yep, 12,000%. That That's an <laughs> amazing return. And by realizing that return, what took you so long to actually start reading the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad? So actually, I think there was just one, a misunderstanding on that point, but I'm glad you asked. So here's what happened. It was in 2007 that I sold the piece of land. And actually, within a month, I had already started the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It's like I sold it and I was in classes and I was doing what I needed to do. I was taking 18 credits, a fairly heavy course load. And so I was in class and I was doing all that, but I still found a way to get that book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, started almost immediately. I can't remember the exact, but I bet you it was within two weeks of selling it. So, Thank you so much for clarifying that. And you mentioned that you started your first apartment, purchasing your first apartments in 2007, and you lost the apartment at the time. What contributed to losing that apartment? And what helped you pick yourself up and say, you know what, I'm not going to get beat down by this. This is like a motivation for me. I'm going to just drive through it and then get started again. So what made me... Okay. That first multifamily that I purchased, I did a house hack for it. I actually was managing property from 2007 to 2008. And I thought that I was, you know, the king of the world because one of the properties that I had managed, he was able to sell it and make a million dollars from my efforts over that year. And I thought that that was pretty awesome. And I thought that I was pretty untouchable. And so that overconfidence that I had was certainly one of the big things that I think would contribute to me end up losing the property. I believe anytime we get too arrogant, the universe has a way of hitting us on top of the head to give us that humility that is so necessary for all of us. But yeah, part of the contribution to me losing it was just overconfidence. Part of me losing that property was the market. The market was in a tough time. And then I think that the next big thing was me not understanding how important it was to do things right. I had done things really well for a while and I had been able to show really good success. But now that I had my own apartment, my own multifamily unit with multiple tenants, I didn't go to an attorney to draft my contracts. And when it was time for me to evict somebody for not paying, again, I did not utilize somebody who had been there and done that before. I took my focus off of where I was actually making my money so that I could do these evictions, but I had no business doing evictions. Additionally, I probably should have hired a property management company. But what I was thinking inside me was, 
I'm bringing in about $3,000 a month on this property. And my net positive is about 300 a month. If I were to get a property management company, then I would be, quote, giving away all of my profits, that 10%. And because I felt like that I needed to have that 300 for some reason, I literally lost much, much, much money in my business by taking my eye off the ball of my business to try to do these, try to do all of the property management on my own, including the evictions. But had I have just had a property management company, had I have hired an attorney to do the evictions, somebody who had been there and done that, not only would I have kept my property, and it's worth a lot more today, by the way, but I also would have had the chance to work harder in the business that I was running and been able to pull in much more than that $300 difference. So there's a lot of things that I had done wrong from contracts that I didn't have the right person, from hiring the right people, from me expecting to do it on my own, from me thinking that I needed that 300 for some reason, which I didn't. I ended up losing a lot more money because I wanted to hold on to that 300. And in large part, something that I hadn't yet mentioned is some of the tenants that I had, actually 100% of the tenants that I had, I didn't do this, but it worked out just fine on a couple of them. But the ones, the tenants that I, there was a couple of tenants where I didn't do any background check on them. I didn't make them fill out an uh, application form. In 2008 and nine, the market was really tough. And instead of me just sticking to my rule of having really solid tenants, I basically put anyone in there that told me that they could pay. And I didn't run a background check. I didn't do any of that. And that ended up hurting me as well. So there's quite a bit of learning lessons out of that first deal. The other part of your question was, how, Adam, did you, once you figured out how to, once you lost all this money, how did you like get back into real estate? And that's a really good question because I was so scared. My tail was between my legs, figuratively speaking. I was nervous. I was scared. I was shy. I had one kid and one kid on the way. And it was 2011. And I thought to myself, I don't want to have another problem like this. So I actually left real estate investing completely in 2011. And it wasn't until 2015 that my stepdad flew out to Denver because I grew up in Utah, but now I live in Denver. And he actually drove out to my house and took me to a real estate convention. And he told me, you got to get back in the game. You got to get back in the game. And I actually started crying. I felt so embarrassed by losing my first multifamily. I felt scared because my kids were growing up and money was tight. Just to give you an example, I think I was making like $45,000 a year and my rent was $2,600. That's like you barely have any money left over from forty-five dollars and 30-ish thousand for your rent, right? For a year. And so things were tight. And my dad just kept saying, you got to do it. You got to do it. You got to do it. And so I ended up 
joining a coaching program and utilizing other people's money. Because at the time I had only a little bit of money in the bank. It certainly wasn't an it wasn't enough that I could invest it into something. It was just enough to help me have some expense, a little bit of a cushion, right? And so as I started going into real estate again in 2015, I utilized OPM almost exclusively. And we did some really cool things. Like we would buy a rental for like half of its value. And then I would get a loan on it for like 60% of its value. And so we actually have more money than we had before. And so we can go and do that again. And we did that quite a bit until we had like 23 units that all came from the same 50 or $60,000. You know, we, we would buy something for 45 and then we would get a loan on it for 55 and then we buy something else and something else and something else. And that was kind of how I got back into it. And it was my stepdad again who basically burnt the lit that flame under my bum. That was a great lesson learned and definitely a hands-on lesson learned in real estate investing. And, you know, thank you so much for sharing all that information. And you mentioned that in 2015, when you got back and you tried multiple types of real estate investing, fix and flips, mobile homes, different types and apartment syndication. What caused you to make decisions that you're going to stick with the multi-family apartment syndication? And what has been the biggest challenges while scaling up your, your real estate business to today? In 2015, people were starting to get concerned about the market dropping, real estate market dropping. And so I put myself to a lot of work and effort to study and try to understand what types of assets I should be focusing on. And when I looked at single family, I looked and saw that not only in single family were there, did the um, foreclosure rates increase during the last crash of 2008, 9, 10. Foreclosure rates increased a lot. I think that the metric is like six times or 12 times. I don't remember, but it's, it's all a lot, multiple. And that was during that time. And I kept looking at different things, stock market. I kept looking at just all of the different types of assets. And I felt after a lot of research, the most comfortable with apartments that are above 100 units. And so that's really where I started to put my focus. And there's all sorts of things that I learned that can be tangible for the listener. And one of those things is this thing called the SHARP ratio, S-H-A-R-P-E, SHARP ratio. And it comes from a mathematician, economist, whose last name is SHARP. And he figured out this certain ratio that helped us to understand the risk profile of an investment. And so he and people that worked with him started doing, utilizing this risk-adjusted return on a lot of different types of asset classes. To give you an example, the S&P 500 became one of the best known ways to invest, at least within stock market, because it had a positive sharp ratio. A 1.0 would mean the risk and the reward are equal, but it actually had like a 1.27 as, so that's 27% better than just equal. And so that was a way because over time, the ups and downs, the gap of those ups and downs, they mean something. They mean volatility. 
and then over that volatility, how much they can spit out as a return. And so based on there being less volatility with the 500 top companies that S&P 500 were investing in, they were able to get a 1.27 sharp ratio. And when we look at multifamily, it depends on which person you look at and which years those were in. But every single time that we look at the sharp ratio and compare apartment investing, these 100 plus units, then we're going to see it's about six times more powerful than the S&P 500. And so it made me feel like I don't want that volatility and I do want the increase. And some of the reasons why you get such a great benefit with apartments is because investors, it's a simple business. It's easy to understand. We are always making more babies every year, but we don't make any more land. So these multifamily are getting more and more necessary. I also did a lot of research that helped me understand that not only were millennials more likely to get there to start living in apartments where they could do more vacationing, where it was cheaper, they didn't have to mow a lawn, they could focus on their business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But also the boomers at the time, and I believe they still are, starting to move into the multifamily as well. Because again, they want to travel. It's their time to be able to travel. Finally, they've been working hard their whole life. A lot of their money is coming out of the stock market because a lot of the boomers are starting to get to that place where the money is starting to come out. So that made me nervous about the strength of the stock market as well. And they're starting to live in these apartments Etc. I could go so into detail on why multifamily, but I found that also I can raise more money with it from passive investors. So again, that comes back to that OPM. And the reason why is because passive investors trust multifamily, banks trust multifamily, and passive investors understand multifamily. As I understand it, assisted living has a potential of making more money on the asset. But with all of the things that can go wrong with code violations, with the medicines that you're putting out, there is some volatility or you could be really scared because only a small amount of people can do that well. But with apartments, it's a simple business plan. There's no medicine. The risks go down because you're not administering medicine. All of your passive investors completely understand the business plan. In fact, most of us have probably lived in an apartment at some point in our life, maybe during college or whatever. And so there's a lot of passive investor money that I can put into apartments. And the last thing that I'll share is just the debt, the leverage, not the money that I'm raising from passive investors, the money that I'm raising from banks and institutions. So large banks and institutions have found out that over time that apartments are the best asset, which is the reason why they will go 85% loan to value, 80% loan to value, 75% loan to value. As long as you have the right amount of DSCR, debt service coverage ratio, as long as you're making money, they'll go up to you know 85% loan to value. They'll do a 40-year loan or a 35-year loan or a 30-year amortized loan. They'll do longer terms. And so like when we're thinking of all the places we can put money, once if we can get that 80-20 loan that I mentioned to you, if you have your money in stocks and the stock price or the value of the stock goes up that year by 10%, 
and you have $100,000 in, you've just made 10 grand on a stock. But if you're using this leverage that I'm mentioning, the more leverage, the better. And if you're buying a $500,000 multifamily and you put in 100,000, and if that property goes up by 10%, then you don't make 10% on your money. You make 50% on your money because the value went from 500,000 to 550,000. You only have 100 into it. So now your equity is that 150,000. So there's just so many reasons why I've decided that this is the one thing I'm going to focus on. And I need to put my horse blinders on so I don't chase even one more shiny object. Wow. Yes, definitely. Especially you gave a ton of great information and reasons why multifamily is really a good investment to a place to be in. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. And so one of the things that you mentioned was building your investor base. What are some of the ways that you were able to build your investor base and just creating those meaningful relationships with them? There is three ways that I use to create, as you said, an investor base with meaningful relationships. The first one, I call these the three pillars. So for your listener, they can take note of what these three pillars are. And that's because if they want to raise lots of equity, they should be doing all three of these things. Not one of them is more important than the other. And the three go hand in hand. Social media presence, live in-person meetings, and a thought leadership platform. Okay, so with social media, this is a way for you to be who you are because you're going to attract other people like you. And so for the listener who's thinking to themselves, Adam just said, I need to do live in-person meetings. I need to have a podcast or some type of thought leadership platform, maybe a book, maybe a YouTube or a podcast. And I have to be on social media. There's going to be a lot of people that heard that and they're like, well, I don't want to do all three of them. So I want to share it in such a way that's going to give you like more inspiration to actually do it. And I'll give you the easiest ways and routes to go about it. And then I'll also make sure that you understand why they're so critical and why you won't be able to get those things that Eileen asked about, good, meaningful relationships with past investors, unless you do all three. So within the thought leadership, this is the way that you can be yourself. If somebody's searching for you, if somebody wants to find Eileen, they type in your name, they see that because of the algorithms that Facebook and YouTube and those things have, LinkedIn especially, these are some of the things that get put out in front of your investor when they look up your name. And that's a benefit because when they look you up, you want them to be able to be pulled into your world. But also at the same time as you're mentioning things on social media, I like the jab, jab, right hook mentality where you basically give value, give value, give value before you ever ask. You might teach people a little bit about apartment investing or the sharp ratio that you just learned on this show. Then you might go out and search about it and then give some of that value without asking for anything, because it's just a jab, jab, jab. You haven't thrown the right hook yet. You're just doing value, value. You might talk about your children if you have children, or your spouse, or your significant other if you have one. Your hobbies, your goals, 
and what's going well and what's not going well. It's not a place to bicker and moan and show people that you're a negative person. It's a time to maybe say, hey, I'm struggling with my weight right now. What do I do? That's going to get a lot of engagement. So you want to be you, who you are to the core on social media. That's going to let people be more attracted to you. Just to give you one quick example, I'm a mountain biker. I'm new at mountain biking. I used to be a road biker and a triathlete a long time ago. But now that I'm putting uh, posts about mountain biking, I have actually had more than one person come to me and say, I want to invest with you. And they are young mountain bikers or older mountain bikers, but they love, they love getting out onto the trail. And we can identify on that one thing. It's they can invest with anyone that they want. There's so many people, but your investors, I'm talking to you, the listener right now, your investors are going to invest with you because they get along with you. So don't be fake. Don't have a facade. Just be who you are. If you cuss, then cuss. If you have tattoos, show them off. It's You just have to be all the way you because you're going to attract people that are just like you that would never want to invest in anyone else's deal but yours as long as you can be who you are. So that's social media. As far as, yeah, go ahead. So for social media, like for somebody who may be uncomfortable with putting themselves out there, what kind of advice can you give to them to make them feel a little bit more comfortable to sharing and bring the people in to and getting them to know you a little bit more? The person who feels a little bit uncomfortable and is listening to this show is probably passionate about something. They might be passionate about mountain biking. They might be passionate about their kids. They might be passionate about multifamily apartments. But what I've noticed is if you can share your passions and your questions and your concerns on social, it's not going to be something where you really feel like you're putting yourself out there so much. Now, if you want to stretch yourself, then do more stories. They call them stories on like Facebook and do more Facebook live videos. That's the next level. I'm not even asking you to do that right now. I'm just asking you to talk about the things that you're passionate about and that's it. But I will go a step further because this is something that can help a lot of us. And it's something that helps me right now on this podcast. Most of the people listening might not believe that I'm very shy person. When, as I grew up, I have dyslexia and ADHD. What this means is as an entrepreneur, I chase shiny objects, but also I can get off of track fast and quick and easy. I can forget what I'm saying quick and easy. I can be in the middle of a sentence and think that I have a good point to make. And then I just pause. And that's hard for somebody. That's embarrassing. That is something that has been a challenge for me ever since I was five years old. And the only reason that I can get onto a podcast with you today, and the only reason I host my own podcast, and I even host a conference that hundreds of people come to, and I'm on stage sweating bullets. But I'll tell you, the thing that helps me to be able to do it is I think about not myself. I think about the listener. I think about the person sitting in their seat. I might not visualize a whole audience of 617 people naked. I don't do that. (laughs) That doesn't seem to help me. Instead, I think about one of the people that's in that audience 
and what they need to hear. I'm going to cry actually, but I think about what does that person need? And when I can get my thoughts off of myself, then I become a little bit more eloquent or maybe I'm not. And I just no longer care about being eloquent. And I only care about giving value to other people. And so if the listener wants to know how to get out of their own head to put themselves out there, the easiest thing to do is to understand that you have something of massive value that can grow someone else. Adam Adams, I'm not in the top spot in the whole world. There are many investors that have invested much more than me, that have more of a portfolio, that have more years behind them, but they might not be able to come on a show like this and deliver value because they don't always seem to care about the listener. They sometimes seem to care about oh, I need to make sure that everybody knows that I closed on this many millions. I need to make sure that I have a good call to action so that I can get the most amount of passive investors from this one show. Then when they're focusing on the things that they need, they lose and they get into their own head. But when we can get out of that and we can care about the listener or the viewer or the audience, it tends to benefit me, even as somebody who has struggled with being a little shy, a little self-conscious as I've grown up, I found that to be the only way to get over that. Does that make sense? No, that definitely okay. makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. I'm just getting emotional too, just <laughs> listening to you talk. But thank you so much for sharing that. And definitely it makes a lot of sense and just putting yourself out there and you know, not worrying too much about what other people are thinking, as long as you're trying to add as much value as other pe to other people as you can. And just like you said, just thinking about the other person on the other side and then just what their needs are and just trying to see how you can help them in a new way. It's definitely puts things into a little bit more perspective and puts you in a different mindset than like what you would have normally. So appreciate that. And thank you so much for sharing. This is where we're going to end today. Our interview with Adam was going so well that we had to make this interview into a three-part series. Tomorrow, we'll be launching the second of the three episodes. Stay tuned. Adam will return to talk about the next pillar, live in-person meetups. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate. We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonifestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.